0: The Fascism: A Sadly Topical Podcast Covering the Global Rise of the Radical Right. I'm Craig Johnson. Today, more updates on the aftermath of the January 6th attempted coup in the United States. Some updates on the Philippine regime of Duterte. A retrospective on the life and Nazi connections of Prince Philip, the former Prince Consort of Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom, and a see in hell, a dead fascist from Italy. In the United States, we have some more reporting on the nature and connections of some of the fascist and right-wing violence that was occurring in this country in 2020 and also early 2011. Uh, Specifically, we have some new evidence coming out about the Connections that a Mr. Carrillo, uh, who killed police officers in Oakland uh, last June, June 2020, uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, This reporting is coming from PBS Frontline. Uh, There's more and more evidence as this man gets to trial um, about his connections to national level Boogaloo Boys networks. Now, if you haven't been listening to the podcast or paying attention to who exactly these particular people are, the Boogaloo Boys are a national. Sort of disorganized, diffuse network of people who believe that the United States' government is corrupt and needs to be replaced and that it needs to be replaced through the fires of civil war, essentially. Um, the boogaloo that they're referring to is a joke, um, about the, uh, the movie, uh, Break Into Electric Boogaloo. Uh, the idea is that we need a second boogaloo, uh, a sequel, uh, to the United States' civil war, um, And that this one will, you know, usher in a sort of like more liberated, usually somewhat libertarian in flavor future for the United States. Now, the Boogaloo Boys are complicated um, as figures on the right wing. They're violent. They do kill people, but they also participate in anti-police, anti-state violence uh, in a way that we do not see other armed groups in the United States like the Three Percenters or the Proud Boys doing. And that's because the Boogaloo Boys are essentially what, what would be called accelerationists. They believe that violence against the state is good in that it will, you know, spur a new civil war. And, you know, it's out of the ashes of that conflict uh, that the new future that they want will emerge. and It, it was already known uh, at the date of his murder uh, that Curio was involved in the Boogaloo Boys, but now we have more and more evidence about the fact that he was just like deeply embedded in these networks and had been for some years. And this is especially important because he was connected to these extremist networks when he was an active duty air force officer, um, which is something that you're not allowed to be. Um, if you're an active duty military personnel in the United States, you're not allowed to be a part of an extremist network Uh, However, we're learning more and more that people just knew this about him and they were just sort of okay with it. Uh, He was allowed to participate in these things and reached out to Bulu boys when he was out committing his murder spree, you know, out attempting to incite violence uh, in Oakland uh, to try to get the police to retaliate against the protesters, to get the protesters to escalate against the police, to cause a civil war. Uh, That was his goal. Additional new information coming out of law enforcement and uh, out of the justice system in the United States regarding right-wing violence is that we have today the release of the report of the Inspector General from the Capitol Police. This reporting is coming out of the New York Times. Uh, the Inspector General has conducted an investigation of the Capitol Police's behavior during the January 6th attempted coup in the United States, and it shows that they knew fully well uh, about the threats to the joint session on that day, um, but downplayed them on the day of and, you know, consider there to be no threat that they needed to specifically prepare for that day, which is just completely ridiculous. Everybody knew that this was going to happen again, including them. Um, the inspector general also notes that there is evidence that the leadership, this is a quote, the leadership of the Capitol Police told the Capitol Police officers who were trying to stop the rioters from entering the building, they told them not to use their higher-intensity, you know, less-than-lethal quote-unquote weapons, such as stun grenades and tear gases and things like that. Why they would be prevented from using that kind of weaponry during an assault on the Capitol building, uh, when people were specifically threatening congresspersons and also former Vice President Mike Pence is, well, I mean, there are some potential reasons why they might be telling them not to use that kind of weaponry. Um, And it all points to, again, evidence of some kind of coordination. Uh, between some parts of the state security apparatus namely the leadership of the capitol police the organizers of the folks on the ground itself these are you know actual right-wing actors and the trump administration to, to orchestrate what amounts to a coup against the government of the united states and specifically the powers of the congress to validate a presidential election this combined with other similar evidence such as, you know, mounting evidence of Trump appointees, Trump administration officials being present on the grounds of the coup January 6th. Remember I was talking about uh, Freddie Klein, that person from a couple weeks ago. And of course, the most damning piece of evidence, the refusal uh, to mobilize the National Guard or the police officers of Washington, D.C. to stop the coup. Now, all of that combined is it's still just circumstantial evidence and it's unfortunate we might have to wait decades you know this is how long writing history takes but we might have to wait decades to really know exactly what was happening but evidence is mounting more and more every day that this was a real attempt to stage a coup in the united states Outside of the United States, the president of the Philippines, uh, Duterte, has reappeared after a two-week absence, uh, hoarse, and having difficulty talking. Um, This is uh, just fanning the flames of, you know, beliefs that he is, is sick, you know, either with the coronavirus or with uh, some other very serious disease that's preventing him from appearing in public, as he often does. Uh, he appeared in public specifically because cases in the Philippines are surging, as they are throughout the world, uh, especially in countries governed by similar type strong persons, uh, like Jair Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. Uh, so cases are surging in the Philippines, but Duterte says that he can't do anything about it, that, that people just need to be prepared to die Uh, in the interests of the continuation of something like normalcy in the country. Uh, Obviously, listeners who are from the United States or from Brazil or from the United Kingdom, for that matter, are familiar with this kind of rhetoric, uh, with leaders going back and forth between saying that people just need to be prepared to die, you know, to lay down their life for the normal functioning of the country, and very severe lockdown measures. Now, speaking not of the Philippines, but of Philip, uh, the United Kingdom's Prince Philip died this week at the age of 99. Now, Prince Philip was not a fascist. He was just a monarchist. But three of his four sisters were married to card-carrying members of the Nazi party. Uh, the one exception being Princess Cecily, whose husband, who is also a German, died with her in a plane crash in 1937. So, you know, he, he, he escaped the height of the Nazi regime. This funeral, this funeral of his sister and brother-in-law, is the source of the you know recently very well-circulated photograph of Prince Philip, then a teenager, uh, surrounded by Nazis uh, at this funeral. So if we take a catalog, you know, a list of these very close relatives of Philip who, who, you know, weren't just Germans, they're not just royal Germans, they're not just conservative Germans, they're not just people who, you know, stood idly by as the Nazis took over their country... These are card-carrying members of the Nazi party. These are members of the Nazi military. So let's just go through a list of these folks, right? Uh, These are brothers-in-law of Prince Philip. And we have Prince Gottfried, uh, who joined the Nazi party in the 1930s and was later ousted from the party as part of an anti-Hitler plot. Uh, He then went on to live and died in the mid-20th century. We have Prince Berthold, uh, who was in the Wehrmacht. That's the, the, the military, you know, the army. Uh, in Germany, um, but was injured in France in 1940 and was thus spared from the Allied invasion. Uh, He also survived the war and died in the mid-20th century. Finally, and most importantly, most interestingly, uh, we have Prince Christoph of Hesse, uh, who wasn't just a military officer. He wasn't just a Nazi party member. He was an SS officer. Now, the SS was a very special and powerful part of the Nazi regime is increasingly powerful as the regime went on. It began as a series of bodyguards and personal protectors for Hitler and other important Nazi personnel, but it ballooned to be like an entire parallel party. Um, it had its own intelligence wing. It had its own military. It had its own air force. It had its own all sorts of stuff. So Christoph was part of this. It's, it's a really elite, powerful, very major part of the Nazi regime, and he had a very big role to play. He was a real bigwig, very high up in the German air force, it's the Luftwaffe, and he carried the rank in the SS of Oberführer, uh, which is something close to a colonel. He participated very extensively in the war, in World War II, uh, as a coordinator of Luftwaffe activity, primarily in Italy, in the Mediterranean. He died in a plane crash, being recalled to Germany from Italy in 1943. You know, the idea was that he was going to be able to continue his efforts there after the Allied invasion of Italy, but he died and, you know, was unable to continue his efforts. Now, obviously, throughout this time, you know, it's not as if Prince Philip got to choose who his sisters married. Um They didn't really either. Right. You know, these are all members of European royal lines that are connected to countries that didn't have monarchies anymore. Right. You know, Prince Philip comes from the, the monarchy that led Greece that was ousted um by the by the Turkish invasion. However, it serves as a reminder of the connections between the right wing of in all of its various forms. Right. Monarchists are the right wing. Right, Kings, queens, uh, these are essentially conservative forces. And the fact that they are deeply connected, not just to fascism, but to the most powerful, most dangerous, most disgusting fascist regime in history, Nazi Germany, uh, serves as a reminder and should remind anybody uh, who lives in a country that has a monarchy that these people, not going back that far, not that many generations back, were literally in bed with fascists. And closing out the program today, as I do every week, I'm bringing you the news of a dead fascist or right-wing figure in history. This is a segment I call See You in Hell. This week, we're going again, back to the 1940s, to a man named Giovanni Gentile. Uh, As you might guess, Gentile was an Italian fascist. Uh, He was a fascist philosopher and education reformer. He made his name as a post-Hegelian philosopher and was actually extremely successful and well-liked by many of his contemporary philosophers in uh, continental Europe. He then, of course, uh, as many other philosophers did at the time, became really seriously enamored of Mussolini's fascist party and the fascist movement in general. Uh, It was really in keeping with his philosophy, which was sort of about a transcendental view of thought and being and, you know, the primacy of will and and thought and being, uh, you know, this is a sort of like weird conservative post-Hegelian mutation that I'm not exactly going to get into because this is not, well, lamentably, this is not a podcast about uh, Hegelian philosophy. I guess that's a different one. Um, but the point is that his particular philosophy was very conducive to being connected to fascism. Uh, and this led to both him and Mussolini himself uh, calling Gentili, quote, the philosopher of fascism. Uh, this led to Gentili getting a lot of extremely important positions in the fascist intellectual world. For example, he ghost wrote an essay called The Doctrine of Fascism for Mussolini, which is an important part of the origins of fascist philosophy and, you know, the fascist mentality of, of governing the fascist government in Italy. Uh, it highlights and outlines the way that fascists claimed that they were going to govern the country uh, through violence, uh, through anti-parliamentarism, uh, through you know, individual self-reliance, through the, the importance and primacy of communities, and through corporatism, uh, which is a governmental philosophy that doesn't originate with fascism and isn't coterminous with fascism, uh, which essentially believes that each group in society should have a representative of itself in government so so the the claim is that like governments shouldn't be comprised of representatives from regions uh but that the representatives should come from groups. Uh, this means that like fascist plans in Italy and you know the fascist Spain actually did do this, um, the plan was to have a legislature that was comprised of you know not not a senator from Illinois, but you know a representative from labor or a representative who represented mothers. Or a representative who was for students, or for soldiers, or for priests, uh, and the idea was that people uh, represented by their social category, uh, as opposed to their region or, or their political affiliation, uh, that that would be more natural, more organic, uh, more understandable for people, uh, which is a major part of a lot of fascist philosophy. Uh, you know, their claim that their organization of society is the most natural, expected honest one. Uh, Gentili also wrote a document called the Fascist Manifesto, uh, which is a much more intellectual uh, attempt to codify these particular uh, philosophical doctrines. Uh, The Fascist Manifesto uh, was written by Gentili, but was signed by a number of other fascist intellectuals, including Dionisio, uh, who was a fascist whose death I highlighted several weeks back. Uh, Gentili was also recognized as a member of the Fascist Grand Council, an extremely high governing body in Fascist Italy. Gentili remained loyal to fascist Italy as an education reformer, you know, he served as the minister of education uh, throughout the Italian fascist experience uh, up until 1943 when the allied invasion pushed Mussolini out. He remained loyal to Mussolini even when even after Mussolini was, you know, rescued by the Germans and you know they constructed this sort of like rump state for him to head. Um Gentili was still loyal to Mussolini uh, up until his murder. By anti fascist partisans on this day in history, April 15th, 1944. So, Giovanni Gentili, we'll see you in hell. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics, and thanking you for listening. Uh, If you found this podcast educational, uh, interesting, or fun, God forbid, uh, please like, share and subscribe, you know, share it with friends, family and comrades. Uh, and if you really appreciated the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. Also, get excited. The month of April is a big month in dead fascists. Uh, I'm talking the big two themselves, Mussolini and Hitler coming up later this month. So stay tuned. I'll talk to you next week.